Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Somehow this Zeppelin spirit gets sifted through Steph and Marlene and Joan and Lisa. And yet the four of us, when we are on the stage, we're us. Like I'm sort of partially Jimmy, but I'm also partially Steph. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's lovely to see you again. And I am utterly intrigued by what I heard at the top of the show. Who was speaking and what was she talking about? We heard the voice of Steph Paines. She is the founder of Les Zeppelin, which is an all-female Led Zeppelin. Look, she hates the term tribute band, so I'm going to say experience. And as well as founding the band, she is its guitarist. So she's its Jimmy Page, if you will. Well, so I must know... Are Les Zeppelin an LGBTQ group, or is that just a clever, punny name? It's totally unclear to me, uh, in part because they've had a bunch of membership change-ups mm. over the years. She, I think, is the only founding member who's still in the band. Uh, and that's a question that she declines to answer in interviews. Got it. Well, I am very excited to hear this interview. But first, I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Yes, it's one of my favorite Slate Plus segments that we've done in a while. We will hear about Steph Paines' real-life friendship with the real-life Jimmy Page and what it's like when that real-life Jimmy Page just shows up at one of your gigs sometime. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. And if I weren't already a member, I would definitely sign up for Slate Plus to hear that. Fortunately, it is incredibly easy to join. And as the member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site. You will never hit the paywall. And you'll also get member-exclusive episodes and segments from Working, this show, and also from other Slate podcasts like The Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Steph Paines. Steph Paines, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how would you describe what it is that you do? Magician? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to musician? Because when it works, it's magic and quite extraordinary. Right. I think what I do is I bring a very revered, beloved bunch of compositions alive with a band and that we bring it to people so that they can revisit earlier times when they listen to this music or they can get exposure to this music that they've always heard about and experience it in a way that's live and exciting do you do you use the term, you know, tribute band in your marketing and, and stuff like that? Is that sort of the shorthand for what you do? Or is there a preferred nomenclature, as they say in The Big Lebowski? We hate the term tribute band. I thought you might, because I didn't find it anywhere on hate. your website. I was like, I bet Les Zeppelin does not like the term tribute band. The tribute band, in my mind, is a band that impersonates hmm. another band. So... You know, like an Elvis impersonator <laughs> is is the ultimate tribute. But what we do is not impersonate so much as, I guess, reincarnate or mm. she incarnate. Like, like take she the incarnate, essence. I love that. Yeah. Take the essence of what we feel Led Zeppelin had to offer and 
sort of run that through our own systems, our own sort of group dynamic, and then present that in in a way that, you know, I think is very Zeppelin-esque, but yet is not trying to be them, you know, not trying to fool anyone into, oh, if you just squint a little and it looks all fuzzy, you'll really think it's Led Zeppelin on stage. Right. No one's going to think that. We're girls anyway. You know. Well, that's what I was about to say is like, it's not like the option of a literal representation is open to the band in the same way because you're four women, right? Exactly. I mean, having said that, of course, Led Zeppelin were quite girly in their time. Yes. So they were gender bending as well. And we're gender bending from the opposite end. Mm-hmm. We're sort of guy-like. You know, we're, we're right. girls out there with our long hair, but we're sort of strutting around and poking our pelvises out at people. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, there's it's definitely a swagger, you know. And the guys, if you look at early Led Zeppelin, I mean, you know, they're prancing around and, and mincing and throwing their hair back. And Jimmy is like a silfy sort of ballet dancer, you know. I mean, right. it's very interesting, you know, somewhere in between we meet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just blur the lines all together. Uh, yeah. For th- our listeners who aren't, you know, familiar with the band's history, can you talk a little bit about the origin of the band and, and how you decided to get, a, you know, a group of women together to do, to channel, let's say channel, to channel Led Zeppelin? I like that. I like the channeling. Um, I mean, I could say that, you know, Jimmy put a spell on me and I woke up one day and that was it. I had to, I was obsessed with Led Zeppelin. But it was a little like that. I mean, I just, I was in between gigs myself and um, I had actually been playing with Ronnie Spector. May she Mm -hmm. rest in peace. I just wrote a piece about her as well. But, um, and I was just hankering to play heavy music. And get my guitar skills in order and maybe take them further. And I had been listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin. You know, they had reissued the masters of all their albums. And I had that set. And I was just absolutely addicted to it. And so I thought, you know, quite naively, oh, let's just get a bunch of girls together. And we'll go down and play a bit of Zeppelin once a month and get our $50 from the, you know, bar we're playing in and go have a beer and that'll be that. Right. And, you know, what I realized <laughs> rather quickly is one, where am I going to find girls? Because I thought, you know, the marketer in me thought it's much more interesting if it's girls. So that was a sort of given. But then I just thought, where am I going to find anyone that can play this music and forget about the pool of women was so much smaller to begin with. So I realized I must be crazy. That's I'm not, but somehow miraculously I found these girls through word of mouth one by one. And then we tried to play the music and it's not like I'm saying we were not good musicians. It's just that for anybody, I don't care who you are to sit down and try to be Led Zeppelin. Well, good luck. That's right. all I was just <laughs> Well, no, this is, this is so great because this is such a great creative challenge, right? Because the songs, right. they're not just the chords. They're not just the words. There's the ineffable, inimitable style, right? The soul of, of the band. So how do you go about figuring out what that is on like a technical level as a musician and how to recreate it? Well, that's just it. Yeah. Because... It's not really, the the soul of the band does not lie in the technical level of the band. Mm. The essence of it is something else. It's that magical thing that happens when they play together. And it's bigger than the sum of its parts, and it's bigger than the little guitar lines and the massive drum parts. It is an alchemy And is that just about spending time together or are there specific exercises? Like I come from a theater background and actually a lot of what you're talking about 
kind of rhymes with that experience, right? Because uh-huh. the text is fixed. It might have been written hundreds of years ago. You know, you've got to create an ensemble that can channel its soul and listen to each other and interplay. But like, if you go to acting school, like there's exercises you do to learn how to do that, I guess. Like for you and the band, was it just spending time together? Was there specific techniques you developed to kind of figure out how to maximize the chemistry between the players? Or It happens in a rehearsal, but a lot of it also happens live like in other words it's it's a it's a kind of organic thing and usually it can only happen live really for a band like ours i mean we have gone and we've made records and some tracks are more magical than others but the thing that happens live when you're playing and you're presenting this music and you're getting into it you just kind of have to do it Mm -hmm. a lot with the awareness that the key thing is to play together And to go to the middle of the stage and to huddle together and to throw riffs back and forth and to listen, you know, to really listen and also to let it go. It's like if you just read the words, you know, you're just reading the words of the play and you're copying exactly the way the actor before you read the words of the play. Well, Maybe you'll be as good as the actor before you with any luck, but you're you're not necessarily going to add anything to it. Right. You're not going to make it come alive, most likely. To make it come alive, you, Isaac, have to come across and just bring something, you know? Mm-hmm. Somehow this Zeppelin spirit gets sifted through Steph and Marlene and Joan and Lisa and yet, the four of us, when we are on the stage, we're us. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not really, I'm sort of partially Jimmy, but I'm also partially Steph. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to sound exactly like Jimmy. I've already accepted that. <laughs> you know? did you, and it's okay. Did you try, though? Is there a period of time where you're like, sure. I have to get a Dan Electro 3021 and I have to watch videos of him strumming so I can strum exactly like him or, you know, yes. whatever it is? Absolutely, yes. Was that and sort I, of the I, early phase of doing the, the band? Yes, yes, definitely. And and I have all those guitars and I work very hard to match the sound because the sound is very important. Like if you can't play your Les Paul through it like a Marshall 900. Right. Just to give you, you know, because it's going to sound like ACDC. Right. Not like Led Zeppelin because that fuzzy sound is going to be there and it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So those things are technical. Those are really technical. You got to, I think you got to get that right. But that can only take you so far. You then have to play the guitar in a way that is very like how he played. And that takes studying. Yeah, I was about to ask, what was that research process like? Are you... Uh, you know, like, like I have friends who are like huge Grateful Dead fans, right? Who are guitarists. And so they'll watch YouTube tutorials on how to solo like Jerry or whatever, you know? Uh, but when you're starting the band in 2004, I don't even remember if YouTube existed then. So what was your research process like? Are you watching videos of him live or reading interviews to figure out like, what was it? Actually, you're right. So in, when I started the band in 2004, basically, There was nothing like that. And there was very little live Led Zeppelin. I mean, basically all you had was the song Remains the Same. Right. So if you go back (laughs) and you see all these quote-unquote tribute bands doing Led Zeppelin early on, you know, before that time period and even after, everyone's dressed like the song Remains the Same. (laughs) You're right. Yeah, right? I never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. They're That's dressed, right. It's, it, everyone is recreating the look and feel of this one specific sliver exactly. of the band's history. Go look at these tribute bands. You know, you've got Robert with his jeans and his, you know, Jimmy in that black suit. I mean, it's this because that's all you had, right? And what happened, luckily, and this is part of the magic, I believe that they did this specifically for me, <laughs> <laughs> is that, you know, How the West Was Won, the Led Zeppelin DVD came out in 2003. Mm. Now that DVD had a bunch more stuff on it. It had the Earl's Court. It had Royal Albert Hall. It had, you know, Long Beach. It, I mean, it had a bunch of videos, performances that no one ever seen. 
And lo and behold, we had all this other stuff to watch. So I was able to watch Jimmy play a lot more than people before me would have been able to do. And I personally learn a lot by watching a guitar player. I can learn a lot Hmm. by doing that. Just seeing the physicality of how somebody plays. Right, like how are, how are their fingers moving on the neck or what's the strumming pattern and how do they affect it? Or Yep, exactly. Body movement. You cannot play like Jimi Hendrix unless you watch how he moves. Mm-hmm. And you, you do with your guitar what he did. Yeah. I'm telling you because I studied him too. And I couldn't sound like him until I was standing... One day, I I spent like four days up in my parents' house in the Berkshires, locked myself in and was watching Rainbow Bridge or other things like that, standing in the middle of the room with a Strat going like, why can't I get this? I got the notes, but why is it not sounding? And I'm watching Jimmy, you know, flail the guitar against his hip and move with it and strumming it. So I just started imitating him. And playing, and suddenly, it was like that's it. Mm. It's just it was just this this little meter that clicked over, just enough to give me that Jimi Hendrixy sound that I was after. And I, it's the same. You you know you need to like really study a guitar players' movements, stuff like that, how they play together. But then, you know, you have to listen and listen and listen and then just do it and do it and figure out why you're not sounding like it. And it's so intense. Mm. The best education for that, actually, and this is way after the band started, in 2009, 2010, we recreated Led Zeppelin One in the studio. We re-recorded the whole album which was nuts. But we did it in a studio, in an analog studio. Mm -hmm. We did it with the same amplifiers. It was like a science project. (laughs) We had the Supros. We had, and the guy that was recording us and producing it was a friend of Jimmy Page's. So we were actually calling Jimmy. What did you use on this? And he would tell us. He would tell us. So we had, you know, he was partial to the experiment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you know, I use the, you know, the uh, Harmony, the, you know, 200 or whatever. Well, which one? The one with this bridge or that? And he would tell us. And this guy happened to have it because he was a vintage guitar dealer. So he'd go into the shelves and pull the same guitar out. I mean, so it was nuts. So we had the the luxury of matching all those guitar sounds, all those drum sounds, all those big. Okay, but that was only step one. Then we recorded it live together, the basic tracks, because that's the only way to do it. You have to do it live because there's no way you're going to get the energy Mm -hmm. of that record unless you do that. And then there were the solos and everything else. Were you recreating the solos note for note or were you doing your own improvisations in those moments? Both. So you you had to make a judgment call, like right. for something like a communication breakdown, most of the solo is the same, okay, because it's this beautiful, neat little solo, right? But for other songs, it was completely improvised. So how many more times or something like that, where where really it was right to take it out. Mm -hmm. It would have been sort of stilted not to. But, for example, with something like Communication Breakdown, there's just that basic riff, which everyone plays, which sounds easy. So we recorded it. And we're listening back to it and we're looking at each other like there's something wrong. The sound is right. The riff is right. The notes are right. What is it? What is it? 
And the more we listen, the more we listen, we realize that there was an upstroke, not a downstroke. So in other words, he was going da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then upstroke, da-da-da, okay? So the, you know, there were two upstrokes instead of down, and unless you do that, it's not going to sound right, okay? So there's like, you know, this crazy studying of this, this minutia, mm. but it makes a difference in the end. So that's how you do it in a, in a completely obsessive, compulsive way. No, I mean, this really sounds like what, you know, people who are super into Shakespearean performance and that's how they specialize, you know, what they do, they're going to break down the the language and the rhythm of the language. There's a whole movement to pronounce Shakespeare's words the way they were pronounced in the late 16th, early 17th century. You know, people will go and get uh, specifically deer leather gloves because the gloves of the costumes <laughs> back then would be deer leather. So, so I totally get it. But, you know, that's still creative, though. I guess I'd, I'd ask you, like, what to you was the most creative part of that because you're still like interpreting in the midst of that right so what what for you felt the most creative part of that process of recreating that album well it was creative to dig really so deep into a piece of music that you become this incredible expert in a piece of music Mm -hmm. and then somewhere within that you find where you need to bring yourself to that. So once you've figured out how to get the sounds and, and, and the feel and everything, then you really need to go in and perform it. Right. And the performance of it and, and the, the spirit of that performance and the music is something that's just you. You know, it, that, that's the individual part. If I go in and play the hell out of um, Whole Lot of Love or, or Since I've Been Loving You or some like heavy blues song, if I can go in with all of that framework, all of that studying where I know how to sound like Jimmy, where I know how to rip into my guitar in a certain way that is so on the edge, and then I go at it and I completely explode into it i'm really being steph i'm not being jimmy mm-hmm. but just within this framework right it, yeah. it's within a context but then the ultimate sort of musicianship is really who i am mm-hmm. and whether i can reach that level of bringing something exciting and powerful to it We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Steph Paines. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, 
Are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us the guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Steph Paines. I have to ask, after you've done that really granular dive into everything from which direction the pick's going in, which amp it's plugged <laughs> into, how is he doing this, you know, little filigree in the song or whatever. Um, by the end of that, are you like, all right, I just need to not listen <laughs> to this song again for like three weeks? Or do you find yourself like like the obsession never ends and you're more deeply in love with it than ever before? Wow. Uh, I think it depends on the song. But then there's you forgot like going out and finding the right clothes. Then you can just go do that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Totally. totally. <laughs> Wait a minute. How am I going to wear my hair? No. Um, How am I going to get the violin bow at the exact right oh, angle? Oh, the the violin bow. That's an interesting point because the violin bow solo, which I do, is never what Jimmy does. Mm. That to me is like the place where I just, it's just going to be me. Right. So I take that bow solo and I'm like, okay, I'm now Steph. I'm doing what I want. Your band is famously a force to be reckoned with live. Can you talk a bit about developing kind of your live show? And because that is a different creative process than recreating the songs in the studio, you know, figuring out how to be great live. You know, what is that like for y'all? Well, first of all, to play this music for an hour and a half or whatever and go through these sort of pyrotechnics of it, if you will. Most people have to just stare at their fingers and make sure they're getting it all right or focus so hard like you're in an exam, you know? You're like, yeah. I have to remember everything and I have to make sure that I don't, you know, there are so many moving parts. And it's physically tiring, I, you know, especially Exhausting. for your drummer, right? I can't imagine it, what it's like to, you know, drum like John Bonham for an hour and a half. It's a gymnastic, physical, yeah. Olympian event. I mean, it's exhausting. But I think that once you get past that, then you, the job you have is to bring that without thinking about what you're playing. And that takes a couple of years, okay, mm. to get to that point <laughs> where yeah. I don't look at my fingers on the guitar anymore. I stopped doing that about 15 years ago. I just look at the audience. I look at the other band members. I strut across the stage. I'm not, I'm not looking at my guitar at all. That took a long time. It also took a couple of years to get the guitar lower and lower below my pelvis <laughs> so that it could be the proper instrument of, you know, sexual force that it right. needs to be. And that's part of it. I mean, it's a very sexual performance. Mm -hmm. But that's what Led Zeppelin is. You take that element out and it's not that anymore. 
And another challenge on top of that, because you've talked about how important the kind of ensemble dynamic, the group dynamic is, is that you've changed band members a few times over the years. And so how does integrating a new member into an already existing kind of framework, you know, how do you tackle that? It's a process. Usually, you know, there was one time when the entire band changed and that was its own little nightmare in and of itself. But more frequently, it's like the singer changes or one person changes at a time, which is less problematic. But the singer in particular, I think, I think it's a whole thing. You know, it trying to be Robert Plant in whatever the essence of a Robert Plant is, is no easy feat. Mm-hmm. It, it's just there are so many things. He's sexual. He's got four octave range. He's he's girly, but he's masculine. He's this. He's that. You know, there's just so many things to what he does. So you have to really get into that. Mm-hmm. And it's it definitely you know you have to get together as a band and and do it. And I find myself egging everyone else on. So mm-hmm. that's partially how you do it. I'll strut around and I'll get myself in the face of the bass player, you know, or the singer mm-hmm. and basically attack them, you know, just, <laughs> just sexualize them. And it works, it works, you know, and, and, and the, before you know it, the whole band is turned on and everyone's doing it. And mm-hmm. then everyone is, and you know, and that's kind of what makes it happen. I mean, it, it strikes me that, you know, a lot of the, you know, for the person in the Robert Plant role is Marlene Angelitis, that they also have to have a very particular chemistry with you, right? Because, you know, you think of Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, you know? Yes. And so I'm just, you know, interested in how you kind of develop that because Marlene's not the first lead singer of the band, you know, in the audition process, are you trying to figure out like, hey, am I going to have good chemistry with this person? Do you... I don't know, go out to lunch to talk or <laughs> whatever it is to, you know, you know, figure out like, what is that dynamic going to be? And are we going to be able to summon some channel, some version of what Page and Plant do? Oh, yeah. It, you know, I think the Jimmy Robert thing is definitely a, a tension and a playfulness and a uh, a dance. How about that? It's like a, it's like a, a sexy dance. I will say that... Um, as women, we have a little bit freer reign because we can be very free with each other. You know, I think women can be more playful with each other sexually on stage than men can. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone, you know, maybe these days it's a little different, you know, in the last couple of years than it has been. But if two guys get together and start you know, rubbing up against each other, I don't think that's going to go over the same way. Mm-hmm. Robert and Jimmy never quite did that. They used to hang on each other a little bit and communicate. But Marlene and I will like, we'll hang all over each other. I mean, you know, there are theremin solos where I'll basically mount her on the stage. You know, <laughs> I can do that and it's fun. And she plays along and we have, you know, groaning sex sessions on stage where it's just fun a little overboard and the audience loves it and we're having a great time you know it's just it's playful Mm -hmm. but the music is very sexual so it's very natural Mm -hmm. i mean the whole thing is like that you can't have a chaste led zeppelin show well yeah (laughs) i mean i suppose you can but it's not very interesting right I think uh, most of these tribute bands that you see, that's what they do. It's mm. chaste and, and sort of robotic. Are you changing up the set list a lot from night to night? Or is it the same, you know, do you rehearse a, a sort of fixed set that you then take out on the road? It depends. You know, we, like, for example, we, we take physical graffiti out on the road. We have oh, right. that Sometimes as a show. Like the album, and right. that's really fun. And we love that album because it's so diverse. But yes, we'll change up the set all the time. How do you think about, I've always wondered, you're our first, you know, like rock act that I've, I've interviewed in a while, uh, that does a lot of, of, of live performance. So how do you figure out a set list? What makes for a good set list for people who are maybe starting bands right now, listening to the show? What tips can you offer them for the, 
Okay, well, we'll argue about this a lot, even like, you know, with our sound guy, we're always arguing. We have a legendary sound guy who has been with us for, oh my God, I don't know how long, 12, 13 years. His name is Night Bob, and he's a legend. But he has an idea of what a great set list is, for example. He thinks you should basically hit them over the head with the hits. Like, you need to build it. And then once you get to that peak, you should peak out you know, somewhere two thirds in and then pummel them all the way out so that there's nothing, you know, they don't, you don't give them a minute to just sort of breathe and go to the bathroom as it were, you know? So, but yet, you know, you might argue, well, no, there are lots of mountains and valleys where, you know, Led Zeppelin, for example, they'd play for three hours and then they'd have a half hour acoustic set in there which is arguably when everyone goes to the bathroom, you know, <laughs> but then some people love it. So I think for us, it depends. You know, we like to, when we're playing the same venue, we like to bring a different set of songs because a lot of the same people will come. So we don't want to just give them the same thing. And, and we know that certain places, for example, Detroit, where they're completely into rock and zeppelin and stuff we can throw obscure stuff at them and they'll love it whereas if you're going to kind of a theater you may not have been there people may not have seen you before they don't know who you are they want to hear led zeppelin you know you have to play whole lot of love and black dog and rock and roll and and the ocean and heartbreaker you know you just have to give them a lot of that stuff or they're going to be lost you know <laughs> so like, what was the, you know they're, they're, right. you have to kind of you know tease them in so i think you know we just sort of massage it and then of course it's what we want to play too right 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 if we're learning something new we want to play it you know so um in i think it was 2019 you released the ep isle of skyros which mm-hmm. seemed to sort of almost announced like a slightly different direction with the band because you had original string arrangements on songs that did not have strings on them on their original albums, like Immigrant Song or Achilles' Last Stand. Who would put strings on that, right? It's crazy. Exactly. Can you talk a bit about kind of, you know, I guess opening up those songs and deciding to add something new into them? And yeah, because it's not a radical shift in what the band does, but it's a bit of a shift. You know, how did you come about doing that? One of the promoters came up with the idea of doing a string concert and we loved it. We jumped at it. And it wasn't like with an orchestra, which has been done, but which didn't really interest us. First of all, it's a whole production, but we didn't want to tame down the music Mm -hmm. so that it was, you know, happy, fluffy Led Zeppelin with an entire orchestra. What we wanted to do was increase the ferocity and the dynamics and, you know, the depth of the music. So we decided let's have a, you know, a smaller a, a quartet or something. So so we had these unusual arrangements. And originally, the island of Skiros was supposed to be just a marketing tool for the string show. But of course, you can't go in the studio and take it lightly. So it became this whole album. <laughs> We actually spent time and money on to create something as good as we could. Did that affect kind of, not that you're touring with a string quartet now or anything, but did that affect kind of your approach to the music afterwards or or the direction the band has taken? I mean, after your forced hiatus with the pandemic and everything, you know, did, did, have you felt like a sort of change in how you think about or approach the song since doing that? Well, we would like to get back to doing string concerts. We actually were supposed to be in Australia uh, a week from today, but that just got postponed till July because of the floods in Sydney. We were going to do a whole tour of Australia. So we have a promoter there who basically is putting on the string shows. So we're going to do a whole orchestrated tour in Australia. And he's actually going to add to the strings, not just a quartet, but maybe, you know, eight to 10, 12 people on stage with some horns and everything. So yeah, I I think that it's something we definitely will get into doing. And you know, we're, we're basically, I think we're playing lots of different things. Like we love to do physical graffiti. 
We'd love to do the string shows. So there are different types of presentations of the music. And mm-hmm. then sometimes just a flat out rock and roll bash, you know. Right. I think what happened since the pandemic, it was a big sort of come to Jesus moment of do we even want to do this anymore? Mm. Can we even do this anymore? Is there going to be live music? And if there is, will there be room for us? You know. Mm-hmm. And happily, I think the answer to all those questions was yes. So uh, we're just happy to to play our guts out or our hearts out. I think if anything's changed, what's changed is the ferocity of what we're absolutely ferocious now on stage, which is right. great. Well, Steph Paines, thank you so much for joining us. I'm working to talk about your process. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Isaac, that was a full-on amazing interview. I haven't seen live rock music in years, but I want to go see Led Zeppelin immediately, if not sooner. I also have to tell you that as soon as I finished listening, I went to YouTube and I queued up some classic Led Zeppelin. Oh, I did the same thing. Like as soon as that interview was <laughs> over, I was like, all right, we're, we're digging in now. Yeah, exactly. You can't resist. And I have to say, I was really quite moved by Steph's explanation of Les Zeppelin's mission, which is allowing people to see Led Zeppelin's music performed live, which other than a few memorable reunion concerts from the surviving members, hasn't been possible since 1980. So Les Zeppelin get to rock out as musicians, but they also get to share this music in a way that isn't available from the actual band anymore. That really is kind of magical. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have someone from a band like Led Zeppelin on the show, and and actually Cameron and I were sort of looking for the right person, and I think he was the one who came up with Steph Payne's, and it just seemed like wow. such a great idea, is I wanted to find out how they see their work and what is that work's creative mission. Because yeah. I just knew it couldn't be as simple as like, hey, it's cool to live the fantasy of being in Led Zeppelin, because that's not going to sustain you over the years of a career, and I think your work's going to be less interesting as a result. And I I think that Steph and the band have figured out something that is really meaningful to do with that work. Yeah. And not to go too far down the philosophical rabbit hole, but while I accept completely that Led Zeppelin is not copying or reproducing how Led Zeppelin looked and how they behaved in concert, I'm also aware that they're kind of turning back the clock. Like they're serving 1970s Led Zeppelin, not 2007 Led Zeppelin. Although, honestly, to me, the band looked and sounded better in 2007. Uh, Some people do get more attractive as they get older, and I think that's true of both Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, but that's by the by. Um, Anyway, I hope philosophers are aware of this wizardry. Well, one of the problems here is that John Bonham, Led Mm -hmm. Zeppelin's legendary drummer and probably the best British rock drummer of that generation, died in 1980, uh, famously asphyxiating on his own uh, vomit after a a, a day-long drinking binge. And the group disbanded rather than try to replace him. And in the intervening years, people's vocal cords age and change. So Robert Plant does not sound today like he did in the 70s. It is impossible to fully recreate the Led Zeppelin sound of the seventies. And what's great about Led Zeppelin's all female lineup is to some extent that's acknowledged formally, you know, like they're giving you that experience, but it isn't an exact sound for sound recreation because Led Zeppelin themselves can't do that on their reunion (laughs) tour. You know, that is not actually possible. So if you want to get philosophical about it, Led Zeppelin touring in 2007 is as much, if not more of a quote unquote tribute band than Led Zeppelin today. And so there's a way that, you know, that's going to get you closer to a specific kind of the experience because they've studied that live footage because they're trying to recreate what they can of, of what that was like. I have to say that I was glad that Steph kind of brought up the sexual part of the performance. Well, let me say as a male interviewer, I wasn't going to bring that (laughs) up. I mean, that that would be a little like, let's talk about the sexual part. Like that was never going to happen. Yeah, quite right. 
So I was still, I was glad because part of the time traveling dimensions of the band is taking us back to a time when sexual mores were different. What performers did on stage was different. There's something almost disturbing about the level of raw sexuality that was on display in those 1970s Led Zeppelin concerts. I, I almost like, I felt weird watching it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever have another episode of Working either in which someone utters the words, I mount her on the stage in the theremin solo. Like that's quite a combination of, of words. And I thought your comparison to accurate Shakespearean performance nerds was very apt. And obviously all of that is stuff that has to be negotiated in the audition process. It's really tricky. Totally. And I also want to say, if there's any creative types out there who need an assignment, please create something where you can say the line, I mount her on the stage in the theremin solo in an interview on uh, working and pitch yeah. it to us. And we'll try to yeah. we'll try to get you on the show. But no, seriously, rock music is sexual. I mean, there are bands that play against that or don't engage with it, really. Like, it's hard to imagine John Flansburg mounting John Linnell during a They Might Be Giants accordion solo or something. But when we are talking about R-A-W-K rock music, sex is a big part of it. But as in theater or any other kind of performance, you have to make sure that your colleagues because they are colleagues. It's a yes. job. It's a workplace. Yeah. And you have to make sure that they're comfortable with whatever it is you're doing. Famously, Tina Turner was not super comfortable with a lot of the extremely dirty things she had to do with the microphone during her time as part of Ike and Tina Turner. Um, and she's not the only one. So, you know, you it is a thing that has to be negotiated or that you know you have a coworker who's going to do that. Um, and also that you can discuss it with the coworkers in a way that isn't itself harassment, of course. Yeah, totally. I loved the discussion of the intense study that went into Led Zeppelin's recording of Led Zeppelin 1. There are so many occasions when creative people engage in like really deep, deep research and contemplation. And it almost feels a shame that you can't get like a PhD in Led Zeppelin 1 or, you know, I don't know, the history of Russian theatrical technique, perhaps? Well, you um, can get a PhD in that. Okay, okay, good, good to know. Um, Isaac, have you ever found a use for absolute rabbit hole mastery of obscure minutiae, sort of equivalent of whether riffs involve downstrokes or upstrokes? Well, I used to be extremely good at pub trivia. Uh, <laughs> that you know, So there's that. But on a more <laughs> practical level... I think that it's hard to tell what's going to happen with all that knowledge. You know, all those facts, all those concepts, all those ideas you pick up over time. Yeah. What I like to think about is that it's like it's lying dormant in your subconscious and it's just waiting to be jolted awake by some new thing. And that new thing's going to come along and it's going to connect with that thing and that's going to create inspiration. I'll give you a really silly example. I love the Larry Sanders show. I have watched the Larry Sanders show all the way through probably three or four times. And among the other things that show is, is it's a brilliant time capsule of who was famous for what and what was in the discourse in the 1990s. And so when discussions of stuff in our pop culture today come up, sometimes my brain is like, wait, they talked about that on the Larry Sanders show. So that was also a thing in the 1990s. Why don't you go look up what the New York Times had to say about it then? And you'll discover some forgotten connection or story that way. <laughs> That's crazy. Hey, now. Um, hey, now. I, <laughs> I also enjoyed your conversation around setless philosophy. Where do you come down, Isaac? Should it be a massive build with no release or build, 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 and then 20 minutes of acoustic twiddling? What's your ideal setless scenario? I'm so glad you asked me this, June, because it's something I think about a lot, but it does depend <laughs> on the band. And let me tell you, there are bands whose set list philosophies I know very well because I have lots of live recordings of them or I nerd out about these things with friends. And it's different from a mixtape, uh, or as the kids call them today, playlists where oh. you, you know, you want to start off with a banger and then you get an even bigger banger and then you do a slow <laughs> third one. 
that's more sincere, right? Uh, so like Yola Tango, my favorite band, they have a very particular way of constructing their sets around peaks and valleys. And then the final run of five songs or so is usually building ever larger and larger peaks and it culminates in a last song that is one of about eight very loud, long, distorted guitar jams like uh, the story of Yola Tango or I Heard You Looking, things like that. If we had our colleague Seth Maxson on, on here, though, you know, he and I could geek out about how Trey Anastasio constructs the set list for fish shows, which is like a very clear art, etc. So it really depends on the band. I, I bet you're to... you're a fan of acoustic noodling, right? You're just you just want oh. all acoustic noodling all the time. All acoustic noodling all the time, and I'm way back home while that's happening because yeah, yeah, I ain't exactly. sitting there for that. I do think you shouldn't do more than two slow songs in a row because then the audience just goes and gets a beer. Yeah, totally. I mean, which, you know, if you get a share of that, fine, noodle all you like, but they never do. So, so no. Um, I was super interested to hear about Les Zeppelin's string arrangement shows because I am one of those very weird people who actually likes it when strings show up in rock performances or actually not just rock. One of my very favorite albums in this world is the one the great flamenco artist Camarón de la Isla made with the, let me change my pronunciation technique, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And I'm sure (laughs) there are people who think that's complete heresy, but that version of Soy Gitano is one of my desert island discs. It might even be the one that, the only one that I'm left with. So Isaac, where do you stand on orchestras or string sections playing with musicians from other genres? I love it under certain circumstances. It really (laughs) depends on the arrangements and it really depends on how many musicians we're talking about. Yeah. You know, I think there's a higher level of success if it's like a string quartet or a small horn section and they're joining them on stage. I remember I saw at Central Park Summer Stage many, many moons ago, I saw uh, Bell and Sebastian touring right before Dear Catastrophe Waitress came out and they had a string quartet on stage with them. When I saw Janelle Monae at the Apollo, she had a string trio and a horn section that were jobbed in for that show. And, you know, that's wonderful. I I love that stuff. I'd much rather that than tons of synthesizers and backing tracks. But I do feel like when an orchestra specifically gets involved, the arrangements very quickly tend to get very cliched and uninteresting, as I think, frankly, maybe you see on the Led Zeppelin official orchestral album. Um, Part of what makes the Les Zeppelin approach work is that they collaborated with actual composers to come up with interesting arrangements. And those folks were going to do really wild stuff. I got to check that out. So one final question, if you were putting together a tribute band, who would you want to channel? Oh uh, yeah. There's no question about it. Talking heads. I mean, there already okay. is one, though, so who knows? But I love Talking Heads. They're one of my favorite bands. They're very formative. And I think I do a pretty mean David Byrne impression. So here. Hello. I have a tape I want to play you. Right? That's pretty good. It's the beginning of uh, Stop Making Sense. That's all right, isn't it? Uh, yeah. The, oh. how, how good am I at pretending I recognize that? Oh, yeah. Never mind. Sounds great. You know, there's going to be six of our listeners who will get a little thrill out of it. <laughs> Hi. I got a tape I want to play. And the three who love Soy Gitano will be, will be applauding me right now. <laughs> Listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed this show. If you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just one more reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts. You'll get extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you will never, ever hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Steph Paynes for being our guest this week. And extra thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews, who is like the John Bonham of producers <laughs> minus the substance abuse issues. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with rural librarian Jessamine West. Until then, get back to work. Is that David Byrne? I really don't know. Yeah, yeah, that was.